0: Hi, this is Alan Chartok, joining me today to discuss a momentous day in American history and how that day sounded to the millions who were transfixed by their radios are Dr. Ivan Steen and Dr. Ann Fowl, A writer and historian, Dr. Fowl earned her Ph.D. in U.S. history from Rutgers University. She's currently working on a biography of Mildred Gillers, better known as Axis Sally the notorious World War II radio announcer. Dr. Ivan Steen has been on the faculty at the University of Albany for more than 45 years and currently serves as Vincent O'Leary, Associate Professor of History. He's co-director of the Center for Applied Historical Research. Dr. Steen has conducted oral history interviews with radio performers from the 40s and 50s and has taught a course on the golden age of radio. Today, Dr. Ivanstein and Dr. Ann Pfau will guide us through several selections from the radio broadcasts that occurred on D-Day, the Allied Invasion of Normandy on June 6, 1944. This program has been conceived by the Center for Applied Historical Research, and I want to welcome both of you here today. It's wonderful to see you.
1: Good morning, Alan. We have to keep in mind what life was like back there in 1944 in an era before very many people at all had anything resembling modern-day television. There were a handful, but really only that. Most people relied on their radios for instant news. Something like probably about 85% of American households had radios, but almost everyone listened to them either at work or in, in a bar or in a beautician or wherever they happened to be. If they happened to be awake in the wee hours of the morning, they would have heard a bulletin come on one we're going to listen to now is from NBC.
2: We interrupt our program to bring you a special broadcast. The German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. I repeat, the German news agency Transocean said today in a broadcast that the Allied invasion had begun. There was no Allied confirmation. The German broadcast could be one which Allied leaders have expected would be made with the purpose of upsetting patriot plans inside the conquered countries. This bulletin has come to you from the NBC newsroom in New York. There is no Allied confirmation. The Associated Press recorded the broadcast, which said the invasion had begun from the West and that the French port of Le Havre was being shelled. Le Havre lies 100 miles from the English port of Portsmouth and is 80 miles south of the English coastal town of New Haven. German naval forces off the coast are engaged in a battle with enemy landing craft, the broadcast said. The German news agency said the Allied invasion operations began with the landing of airborne troops in the area of the mouth of the Seine River. I repeat, however, that there is no Allied confirmation of this claim. We return you now to your regular scheduled broadcast.
0: And Fowle, I guess I want to ask you this. It sounded like that announcer was discombobulated.
3: Yes, they didn't know really what the news was, whether or not the German broadcast was accurate. And if it were... Why it was accurate? Why would the Germans broadcast this before the U.S. Army or the Allied forces had confirmed this? What do you think, Dr. Steen? Well, what
1: was happening here is everybody knew D-Day was going to take place, but nobody knew when the D was for the (laughs) day. (laughs) So they, they were ready in a sense, but the announcement came suddenly. Why did it come only from the German radio? That was Transocean, which was the German radio that was broadcast overseas. It was not being broadcast to the people in Germany. And there had been a lot of talk and a lot of broadcasting coming over from German radio, which we believed, the U.S. believed, was being used to try to flush out the underground. And so they were very, very cautious about the uh, broadcast, and they were waiting for confirmation from the U.S., which did not come for a while. Uh, How about both of you taking a few seconds just to set
0: it up for us in terms of what was going on? We know that Hitler was convinced it was coming somewhere else. And he had panzer divisions in reserve, and he wasn't committing them, and he didn't commit them probably for a fatal period of time when D-Day occurred. And uh, you had Rommel, who was so responsible for the Atlantic Wall and for the vast defenses that they had, and there was a difference of opinion
1: between them. So maybe somebody could start and tell us a little bit more about that. Well, actually, we're going to hear some of that as we listen to some of the eyewitness reports to take place about what was happening. The point is, and I think certainly Anne would agree on this, this was an incredibly secretive operation. And we had been massing troops, us, that is the Allies and the British, throughout England and ships throughout England and ports all over the place. And so it was very unclear, and that was the advantage we had, very unclear to the German forces where that operation was going to take place. They knew there was going to be a landing. They didn't know where.
3: And one of the things that was interesting when you listen to the eyewitness reports that we're going to hear later is one of the comments so many commentators make is that there's no opposition. Where is this opposition? It was actually quite a surprise. In fact, it's really emphasized in a lot of these reports. So what are we going to hear now?
1: What we're going to hear now is what is going to be happening in CBS studios when they still don't have a confirmation. They're trying to stay on the air continually to broadcast to the American people. And Robert Trout, Bob Trout, a very well-known correspondent for CBS, has been called in to man the microphones. And a couple of things, though, about Bob Trout we should mention. One reason he would be the perfect person is that he had a reputation for being able to talk without a script for as long as he needed to talk without a script, so he was the guy to bring in on this. So let's listen now to what's going to happen with Bob Trout. He is running out of news, so he's trying to explain to the people how they're doing all of this, and he is going to move into the room where the teletype is. So let's listen to Bob Trout now.
4: Since the first German report came in about 30 minutes after midnight Eastern wartime, we've been on the air several times here at Columbia's news headquarters in New York, repeating the facts we know and giving you whatever news has come in. At this point, our Columbia newsroom is a scene of activity rather unusual at this time of the morning. After 3 Eastern wartime, the news machines of the United Press, the Associated Press, the International News Service, and so on which usually at this hour are slowly, calmly printing more or less routine news for afternoon papers, are now hammering out every scrap of information from Europe they can get. But even so, there are sometimes long pauses because of the way in which the Germans have put this story out. And now it might be a good idea to take you on a little three o'clock in the morning tour of Columbia's newsroom. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to stand up from this table in the studio in which I've been broadcasting open the door take the microphone in my hand and walk out into Columbia's newsroom trailing the long cable behind me and when we get out in our newsroom we're now crossing the threshold I'll read off to you some of the news machines and give you an idea just what they are printing at this hour of this unusual morning Columbia's news staff has been quickly assembled and so many staff members appeared so quickly that there are scarcely chairs enough for all members at once. Ned Kalmer, who finished his 11 o'clock broadcast about four hours ago, is still here. Major George Fielding Elliott hurried in, among others. And Major Elliott brought with him a very large supply of maps, as you can well imagine. In one of our offices, the radio is permanently tuned tonight to a London circuit so that we can hear whatever comes over on this particular circuit. A table has quickly been set up and now bears large cups of coffee, the inevitable accompaniment to all stories that break abruptly in the night. In some ways, the scene is not unlike those hard-working nights when the Germans were rushing through Denmark, Norway, the Low Countries, and France. But there's an awful lot of difference. Even though we're suspicious of this German story, and we think that the invasion very possibly has not begun, still the atmosphere in this newsroom tonight is far different from that on those anxious nights when the Germans were on the offensive. And now I've walked with the microphone down to the end of our newsroom, and the first machine that we come to is the brown teletype printer, which turns out the reports from Reuter. That's the British news agency, and here's what Reuter has just printed. London, Reuter, an officer of the staff of the Allied Supreme Command of the Expeditionary Force, today broadcast a warning specially addressed to all Frenchmen living at least within 35 kilometers of the coast. He said, the lives of many depend upon the speed with which you act. And then there was a brief pause, then Reuter continued, warning too. Quote, the air war has entered upon a new phase. This, of course, is what the spokesman said. The air war has entered upon a new phase. You will be warned an hour before an attack. Leaflets will be dropped by Allied planes. As soon as you get the warning, go to your domicile and go at least two kilometers from it into the open country. Two, take along only what you can easily carry. Three, keep off all roads, railway lines, and bridges. Four, do not form groups which could be mistaken for troop concentrations. That's what Reuters is printing at the moment, and as all newsmen will recognize, the inevitable little postscript, the machine says, correction, and warning two, read it, carry. Paragraph three, keep off all roads.
1: So here here we have uh, Robert Trout's basically stalling for time and waiting to hear any news from the U.S. government about this invasion, which they've been only hearing about from German sources up to this point.
3: And at the same time, we chose this clip not only for that reason, but also because it gives you a real entrance into the newsroom that I think a lot of times we don't have. So
0: perhaps this could be seen as the beginning of the 24-hour news cycle mm-hmm. that
1: we are observing every day on CNN and Fox. Yes. In fact, as far as I know, this is the very first time networks, in this case both NBC and CBS, stayed on the air all day, canceled all their, almost all of their regular programming, ended all commercial broadcasting and continuously were on the air trying to piece together news. And if you would listen to the entire day of these broadcasts, you would hear a lot of repetition because people wake up at different times and turn their radios on at uh, different times to listen to what is going on because this was pretty serious stuff. The war had been on since '41. Uh, the British were kicked out of the continent, and now finally the troops are getting back in. And this was really bringing the war now to the enemy, and people were waiting a long time to hear about this.
3: And people had been waiting for D-Day, both in Germany and in the U.S. Everyone knew it was coming soon.
0: Well, let's not waste any more time. Let's go to the next clip. What do we got?
1: Okay. About three hours later, from the time they first heard the broadcast from German radio, came the official communique number one. So let's listen to that.
5: And now we have just been informed that we can expect in a very few seconds, in a very few seconds, a very important broadcast from the British capital. And so now, we take you to London.
6: Expeditionary force. The text of communique number one will be released to the press and radio of the United Nations in 10 seconds, repeat, 10 seconds from now. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. The communique will be repeated. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. This ends the reading of communique number one From Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, this is New York NBC Newsroom again. Men and women of the United States, this is a momentous hour in world history. This is the invasion of Hitler's Europe, the zero hour of the Second Front the men of General Dwight Eisenhower are leaving their landing barges, fighting their way up the beaches into the fortress of Nazi Europe. They are moving in from the sea to attack the enemy under a mammoth cloud of fighter planes, under a ceiling of screaming shells from Allied warships. The first news flashes do not say, but a large proportion of this assault is believed to be in the hands of American men. They are making the attack side by side with the British Tommies, who were bombed and blasted out of Europe at Dunkirk. Now, at this hour, they are bombing and blasting their way back again. This is the European front, once again being established in fire and blood, not only by the Americans and British, but by many allies in the fight against Axis aggression. This is the supreme test of allied spirit and of allied weapons. The world's greatest military undertaking is underway. Casualties in this mammoth operation in the subsequent drive inland may reach a dreadful toll. The German war machine is still powerful and is still strongly entrenched. Our invasion forces are on the offensive against Nazi troops who have been ordered to die rather than retreat. However, die or retreat they must, for this attack up the shores of Europe is being made with all the strength the Allied command can throw into battle. Eisenhower, the commander, has promised that his men will bring victory in Europe in 1944.
1: So we now have the uh, first announcement has come in. We now know the uh, war is officially taking place, at least landing at D-Day, and has reminded me that the announcer there, for any people who are interested, was Robert St. John, another one of the uh, well-known newscasters of the time. I think the important thing to think of here, and the announcer has made a point of mentioning it, is the enormous, absolutely enormous number of planes and ships that were being used here. There's something like 4,000 ships and 11,000 airplanes, eyewitnesses reported that the sky was darkened with the number of airplanes. Kind of amazing to believe that they could keep that all a secret.
3: In fact, the uh, ships that were coming toward the shore were described as looking almost like a beach themselves.
0: But there was a certain amount of, within uh, this last broadcast that we heard, of propaganda. You could Mm -hmm. just hear it. Could somebody speak to that?
3: Well, I mean, there are two types of propaganda. Part of the propaganda is what people cannot say, and the other part of propaganda is what people are encouraged to say, which is that we have the best men, we have the best weapons, we have the best cause, we are going to win. And, and in a lot of these clips that we've chosen, you'll see that, you'll see that sort of propaganda. We don't know what couldn't be said, but we certainly hear you know, the celebration of the American, of the allied cause, as well as a sense that we are... The U.S. is in the right and the Germans are in the wrong.
0: I love that quotation which our announcer gave us, which was, die or retreat, they must. (laughs) Now that, you know, there was yet another alternative, which is that the Germans could have pushed back the the D-Day landing. And there were many people who thought, by the way, that that was perfectly possible. You know, Churchill didn't want to go earlier because he was afraid they they would get killed.
1: Well, you know, a lot of intelligence information was being brought in. As we all know, much of this was done through meetings. Eisenhower was very good at assembling a lot of people together, but ultimately it was his choice to make. And we're going to hear next that Eisenhower picked June 6th. That was not his original choice. It was originally June 5th, but the weather was um, not cooperating and they had to hold it off until June 6th. So this is really a pretty last-minute thing, and that's part of the reason why there is, in terms of the news people, so much confusion of what's going uh, on. Ike, of course, the
0: whole myth of Ike, the whole career of Ike takes place from this very moment. I mean, this is really, of course, he was a commander. He had done very well in the war, but this really was the beginning of what we have come to know as Ike, and he did make a command decision here in which many of his advisors were telling him the weather still wasn't good enough to go, and yet he overruled
1: a lot of people and mm. said, we're going. Yeah, and he picked it right, apparently, because it worked. If it hadn't worked, of course, we would have a whole different story here. It worked, but there were a lot of dead soldiers we lost during that time. Uh, absolutely, although my point out here it was far fewer than they had predicted actually would happen, yep. as many as it was.
3: And one of the things that you'll hear in some of the upcoming clips is, is an attempt to kind of celebrate what's going on, at the same time prepare civilians for the losses that are going to happen.
1: So let's hear Ike What he's doing here is he's talking to people in Europe, particularly the uh, uh, underground and other folks who may be uh, rising up in this broadcast. So let's listen to that.
2: Again, ladies and gentlemen, for a special report, we take you to London. This is the last alerting announcement. In ten seconds,
7: the broadcast will be made from Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force.
8: This is Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force. In a moment you will hear the Supreme Commander, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. This statement will be followed by other messages to the people from the countries on the western coast of Europe, are occupied
9: by the enemy. The Supreme Commander, Allied Expeditionary Force, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. People of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I have much message for all of you. Although the initial assault may not have been made in your own country, the power of the nation is approaching. All people, men and women, young and old, have a part to play in the achievement of final victory. To members of resistance movements, not beloved by nationals, but by outside leaders, I say, all the instructions you have received. It is important to work towards my Also, continue your activities, of you, but do not needlessly endanger your life. Wait until I give you the things to rise and strike the earth. The day will come when I shall need your united strength. Until that day, I call on you for the hard task of and restraint of France. I am proud to have again under my command the gallant forces of France. Fight to their allies. They will play a worthy part in the liberation of our home. Because the initial lightning was made on the soil of your country, I to you with even greater emphasis my message to the peoples of other occupied countries in Western Europe. Follow the instructions of your leaders. A premature uprising of all fencing may prevent you from being a corrupt and a to your country during a critical hour. Be patient, prepare. As Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, there is imposed on me the duty and responsibility of taking all measures necessary to the prosecution of the war. I willing obedience to the orders that I shall issue to essential. Infectious civil administration of France must be provided by Frenchmen. All persons must settle in their present duties unless otherwise instructed. Those who have made common cause with the enemy and so betrayed their country will be alone. When France is liberated from the you yourselves will choose your representative on the government under which you wish to live. In the course of this campaign for the final defeat, the enemy bemates to change further so loss and damage. Subject, though they may be, they are part of the prize of victory. I assure you that I shall do all in my power to merge your hardship. I know that I can count on your steadfastness now, no less than in the past. To you know the heroic deeds of Frenchmen who have continued to struggle against the Nazis and their vicious satellites. In France and throughout the French Empire, have been an example and an inspiration to all of us. Your community the future of, of the of the the Great, great battles lie out of them. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Keep your faith staunch. Our arms are resolute. Together we shall achieve victory.
8: You have just heard the Supreme
9: Commander, General Dwight D. Eisenhower.
0: Of course, there was a backstory here. As he talked about the French government, de Gaulle was detested by FDR. We know that. And we know that Ike himself had mixed feelings where de Gaulle was concerned. So he spent a good deal of time within this short and brief statement talking about how the French were going to be able to pick their own leaders. Anybody want to talk about that?
1: You know, this is a very important broadcast, really, because the, there was this concern that those uh, German broadcasts were an attempt to flush out the underground, mm-hmm. particularly in France, which is where the invasion was taking place. And I think that the tone here is one to, of course, signal to the uh, underground that, where well, you hear from us, we're ready, we're coming in, and that we're not coming as invaders. You people will choose your own government when we're all through. And I don't know that there was any particular point here in terms of what you were just saying, in terms of feelings toward the Gaulle. I mean, it may well have been, but I, I don't detect that particularly. And
7: uh,
3: and, and again, you, you see in German broadcasts that this is treated as a conquest rather than as a liberation. One of the interesting things, I think, about this broadcast, and part of the reason, again, we included it, was the interference. Just all of the interference you get in the shortwave broadcasts From London to New York.
0: So in other words, Anne Fowle, this was not only what we're hearing now because of the tapes that have diminished in their quality, this is what people were hearing at the time. Very important point.
3: Yes, and I think they were used to this sort of interference and in fact I think it added sort of an authenticity to the distance over which the broadcast traveled—I mean, you knew this was coming from far away if you heard that sort of interference. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's it's so different than now. I mean, we'll we'll get a reporter from Afghanistan. And we see him as he is speaking on television. They had to go by short wave back then. There was a lot of interference, what we're not we don't have here. Obviously, that you would hear if you were listening to the entire day's broadcast is how difficult it was for to reach London. Frequently, they'd make an attempt and they'd have to cut it out. And just resume other broadcasting, uh, have the commentators in the NBC or CBS studios just kill time because they couldn't reach London. So what we're playing are the ones where they actually reached them. <laughs> you know, There were many where they never could make contact or sometimes be cut off in the middle because they lost the signal. Going on to the next area we, we're going to uh, look at here. We're so used today um, from watching television news to what we refer to as embedded reporters, reporters who are in with the troops and who will comment. Sometimes they're under fire and we actually see it happening. It's nothing new. During World War II, there were reporters who actually went with the troops and uh, gave eyewitness reports. Of course, not usually exactly when they were happening because we didn't have the broadcast equipment available then that we um, have today. We're going to listen to some of these eyewitness reports because I think they give a real immediacy to uh, what's happening in in this invasion. The first one we'll listen to is, uh, let me back up with just a second to mention that what they did, rather than tripping over each other, they had what they called uh, pooled reporters, a pooled news team, and that was coordinated through BBC. And so it might sometimes be an NBC correspondent, sometimes a CBS correspondent, sometimes BBC, a newspaper correspondent who was part of the pool, Uh, And that's how we get these different people. The first one we're going to listen to is James Welland, who I think was actually a BBC person. Uh, Ann and I were trying to find out some things about him and couldn't find him anywhere, and that may have been why. And James Welland is flying over the invasion zone and reporting on what he's seeing. So let's listen to that.
10: We interrupt
2: this program, Dave, take you to
8: the NBC Newsroom in New York.
2: For another overseas broadcast, the National Broadcasting Company takes you now to London
8: supreme headquarters I have just seen the first American troops preparing to storm ashore onto the continent of Europe they were about to land on the north coast of France at 6.30 British summer time this morning at 6.23 the marauder bomber in which I was riding dropped the last load of bombs to be launched onto the coastal targets before H hour a few minutes later when our landing barges would strike the shore. All night and from dawn onwards, thousands of Allied planes have been softening up a strip of coast. Already several thousand paratroopers are waiting further inland to join forces with the landing parties. These airborne troops were flown in last night. I could see evidence of the landings in a number of parachutes lying in the little fields. But I must say at once, The amazing feature of my flight this morning was the almost unbelievable quietness of the scene below, where in the next few days, maybe in the next few hours, decisive battles for the reconquest of Europe will be fought, for with the exception of German tanks which are moving up the roads towards the the beachhead or hiding in hedges, we saw no signs of enemy resistance.
1: So what he did is he issues the report when he gets back, obviously not from the plane. And it would have looked very quiet because the Germans had not mobilized. They didn't know where it was happening. In fact, Rama wasn't even there. He was home visiting his family. He didn't think it was going to be happening at that time. So it's amazing that these—it's not the only reporter we have who claims he's seen nothing happening down below on the first day. But, of course, they all knew that the uh, Germans would start mobilizing and start moving onto the uh, beaches very soon.
3: In fact, from the air, particularly before the landing, everything looked very quiet. I think one of our later eyewitness accounts will will give you a sense of the damage and the opposition that they'd find on the ground, which would be something different than what you see in the air just before everyone lands.
1: We can go now to another, I think, correspondent, uh, Stanley Richardson, who was an NBC correspondent. In fact, he headed up the invasion team for NBC on that day. Stanley Richardson uh, went on to a, um, I guess it was a PT boat, and was talking to troops there and observing uh, the preparations for the invasion in that regard.
0: Now, Ivanstein, these correspondents obviously uh, were taking their lives in their hands. Yep. I think that's something we all have to remember. Mm. And
1: uh, and in in fact, we'll talk about that uh, later, one of them actually does get killed working as a correspondent.
3: One of the interesting things I think about this clip is that I think More than some of the others, it's more of a propagandistic clip. One of the things that Stanley Richardson emphasizes is that American soldiers were disappointed by the lack of opposition. They were waiting to fight German opposition, which I think is really probably quite untrue. This is the National Broadcasting
8: Company. We take you now to London.
11: The man folks. American war correspondent Stanley Richardson has just returned from the second front beachhead with the first naval eyewitness
10: of the operation.
11: Mr. Richardson, I've just returned from the channel approaches to the coast of France, where I was privileged to watch the opening phases of the largest scale military invasion operation in history. My ringside seat was the heaving deck of a United States Naval Patrol torpedo boat on which I traveled across the channel with the first contingent of a naval task force. This force was composed mostly of American units. From the time we left the British coast until we were within a short two or three miles of the French shore, our naval units encountered no enemy opposition whatsoever. That, perhaps, is the outstanding fact that I brought back with me. Altogether, my squadron of PT boats was in the channel for about 20 hours. We covered scores of square miles of rolling, choppy sea. We were patrolling and acting as escort for literally hundreds of slower-moving vessels of all descriptions. Many of them had been at sea longer than we had, but the Germans either were taken completely by surprise or just were afraid to come out and challenge us. Not a recognizable enemy plane appeared over here. At least no bombs were dropped at or on any of the ships in our area. No low-flying fighters came over to strafe us with machine gun fire. And no enemy vessel, not even one of their vaunted e-boats, came out to the attack. The officers and men with whom I rode wondered searchingly about this. They had been keyed up for some real German opposition, both from the air and the sea. Their trigger fingers were itching for a scrap and they were a very disappointed lot at not getting it. If the Germans weren't just too timid to come out. The only other ready explanation that could be advanced was that they were too busily engaged in coping with the Allied air attacks made on their shore establishment as a prelude to the actual landing of troops. In the area we covered, we could see hundreds of bombers and fighters
4: shuttling back and forth, dropping their bomb loads and returning
11: to England for more explosives to blast the enemy. And we could see the big two-engined American transport planes, also in the hundreds, returning to their bases in the United Kingdom after dropping their airborne troops in France. Yes, Jerry had a lot to keep him busy last night and early today, but as far as the naval phase of our activity was concerned, not a shot was exchanged with the enemy while I was on the scene. For well, that preliminary phase of the show, at any rate, it was all too incredibly easy. We left our patrol torpedo boat, based in daylight, to accompany the slow moving light-advanced guard of ships, which had to pave the way for the actual landing. One of our missions was to protect the Allied minesweepers, which cleared a wide channel straight to the enemy shore for our
2: troop transports and supply
11: ships. Long lines of ships of every description were discernible on the skyline. Literally miles of craft in even column converging upon the area in the channel marked for the concentration point for the actual invasion.
6: Huge transports,
11: tank landing ships, smaller troop landing craft, tankers and supply vessels of every kind plodded doggedly along under lowering skies and laboring over heavy seas. You people at home would have been thrilled to the bone to have seen all these American men, American ships, and American supplies sailing calmly into the action for which they had been prepared and trained for so many months.
1: Just a quick comment uh, on that. The training had involved a lot of almost like false D-Day landings for the troops, so they they usually did not know whether it's going to be the real one or not, so... That's a piece on this. Well, so far we've heard about how incredibly easy they, it seems to have gone. The uh, next person we're going to hear from is Tom Trainer, who was not a broadcast reporter but was a, a newspaper reporter from Los Angeles. And he filed his report the next day on June the 7th. He actually went on shore and walked around and looked at the troops on the ground, and it's a particularly significant, I think, and rather moving uh, report that he gives of what's happening. So let's listen to Tom Trainer.
10: Once again, we present David Haram, one of the most beloved stories of American fiction. For David Haram is America. It's the story of every one of us, of our search for love, for happiness, and the good way of life. Housewives who would like to save both time and money in cleaning will profit from this letter from a woman who is not...
2: The National Broadcasting Company interrupts all its programs to bring you a special broadcast.
10: We take you now to London.
6: This
12: is the Advanced Allied Command of the invasion forces. Part of the amphibious forces which struck at France yesterday were manned by personnel of the United States Coast Guard. Covering them for the combined radio and press global pool was Mr. Tom Trainer, war correspondent of the Los Angeles Times. Mr. Trainer has just arrived at the command post from France after landing on the beachhead with the American Army units that the Coast Guard delivered into battle. He is here in the studio to give you his eyewitness report of the invasion. Mr. Trainer. I've just returned from France after hitchhiking on eight ships, mostly Coast Guard. Coast Guard craft seemed to be all over the channel, snaking survivors out of the water, rushing wounded to first aid, and landing infantry and vehicles on the beach. I hit the beach myself early during D-Day when the Coast Guard cutter on which I was stationed went close ashore to pull aboard some men who had capsized in a duck. They came aboard shivering and shaking with cold, and as soon as they got below, proceeded to get seasick all over the place. I ceased interviewing them at this point, and asked my skipper, Lieutenant Raymond Rosenblum of Baltimore, if he would hail a passing landing craft inward bound to the beach and put me aboard. The transfer was made, and my new skipper, Lieutenant Edward Raymond of Pittsburgh, said, I don't think we can get in. It's all these obstacles that are messing the thing up before we even get to the beach. I couldn't see any obstacles. That's the trouble, he said. Neither can we. The tide is running high, and they're covered. Those are heavy posts driven into the sand with booby traps attached. At low tide, we can avoid them. At high tide, you see. He pointed to various landing craft up and down the beach, which had been stove in and swung idly back and forth with the surf. They got it, he said. We prowled up, we prowled up the coast a mile looking for an opening, and then heard a loud hail behind us. A sleek-looking patrol craft slid by, and the skipper shouted, "Hold off! Don't put your craft ashore until you get further orders." Now what? I asked Raymond. We'll see if we can get you on something smaller, he said. He got out his loud hailer and called a landing craft personnel which is heading into the beach. Motor machinist mate John Kramer of Albany, New York, and Seaman First Class Jack Whitney of Columbus, Ohio, took me aboard. Okay, said Kramer to Whitney, let's go and keep an eye out for the traps. We came sliding and slewing in on some light breakers and grounded. I stepped ashore on France, walking up a beach where men were moving casually about carrying equipment inshore. Up the coast a few hundred yards, German shells were pounding in regularly, but in our area it was peacefully busy. How did you make out? I asked one of the men. It was reasonably soft, he said. The Germans had some machine gun posts and some high velocity guns on the palisades and made it a little hot at first. They waited until a landing craft dropped their ramps, then opened up on them while the men were still inside. In a few cases, we took heavy casualties. Then the navy went to work on the German guns, and it wasn't long before they were quiet. The general lack of fortifications at this point was astonishing. The barbed wire consisted of four single strands such as we use at home to fence in cattle. A man could get through by pushing them down, pushing down on one wire and lifting up on another, providing they weren't booby-trapped. The engineers and beach battalions, however, had blown gaps in the wire through which we could move vehicles. A few dead lay about, and some wounded were here and there on stretchers awaiting transfer to ships at sea. All up and down the broad beach, as far as I could see, men, jeeps, bulldozers, and other equipment were moving about like ants. A few columns of black, greasy smoke smoke marked equipment which had been hit by shell fire and set afire. The German shelling continued steadily at various points up and down the beach, but so far not reached the area in which I was walking. It would work over an area, then move on to another. It was accurate, landing for the most part close to the water's edge, and I saw one small landing craft catch fire after taking a hit. Men came spilling out of it into water waist deep. From time to time there were huge concussions as the engineers set off demolitions. The ground would shake, and the troops would throw themselves violently on the ground. I climbed a rock embankment and came to a piece of flat land where hundreds of men were digging foot trenches. When they got down about a foot and a half, they struck water. Some of them were lying in the water, and I asked if there was much shelling. There is when there is, one man said. Right now there isn't, but when it comes, it sure comes. I asked him what German fortifications he could point out. He showed me some tunnels at the top of the palisade. Palisade rises above the beach along this stretch of coast. There were five or six, I could, five or six positions I could make out, nothing particularly formidable. And I walked over to an aerial which seemed to mark a command post. A colonel and a major were sitting beside a sweat trench half filled with water, and I said to the colonel, sir, I'm a war correspondent. He looked up from a map fiercely, and the major said, I think you'd better stop back later. You might try going up that path there where you see those men, if you can make it. Watch out for, our, watch out for mines, it's heavily mined. A long column of men was winding up the palisade on a narrow path. They weren't moving, but the skyline, they seemed to be knotted up. To reach the palisade, I joined a column who were wading across a slough. The water came nearly to their armpits, and they had to hold their rifles and equipments over their heads. The water was rather warm, but the bottom was a slimy mess. When a man got to the far side of the slough, he would always stop in a maddening way, holding holding the rest of us up. We shouted angrily, but when we got there, each one of us stopped too. The reeds on the far bank were loaded with mines. One man lay at the top of the bank dead. The mines had been marked with bits of paper, and soldiers at the top advised just how to climb so as not to venture into dangerous ground. There were more dead men along the narrow path which led up to the Palisades. The column had stopped moving, and I began to step past men following a captain. Suddenly a voice said, Watch yourself, fellow, that's a mine. A soldier sprawled on the bank was speaking. He had one foot half blown off. He'd stepped on a mine a short time earlier. Now while he waited for litter bearers, He was warning other soldiers about other mines in that vicinity. I can stand the dead, but the wounded horrify me, and I only looked at him to thank him. He looked very tired, but perfectly collected. What you need is the medic, he said. I'll try and get them for you when I go back down. Yeah, he said, but how are they going to get up here? He was right. The pathway was so plugged with men and so heavily mined that it was impassable. The engineers would have to get up there first. The column didn't move forward. The captain I was following stopped, and so did I. I asked him his name, and he said he was Louis Hilly of Cincinnati. It looks like they shell around here a bit, I said, pointing to some shallow craters. No, said Hilly, those are all mine. That's why we're stuck on this path. We tried to edge a few feet further forward and came to a soldier lying in the path curled around a mine. He said his name was Private Morton Soratello of the Bronx. And they asked him if it didn't make him nervous to be curled around a mine like that. No, he said, I just keep care of it and pass the word on to those behind. Just ahead of him, 2nd Lieutenant Bernard Flynn of Springfield, Massachusetts, and Sergeant Arthur Brown of Brookfield, Maryland, we're sitting in the immediate vicinity of mines, which they were calling to attention of all who passed. It's all right, except when a shell comes in, Flynn said. Then you are have to forget and fall on a thing. While we were stopped there, a squib-like report sounded behind us. I thought it was a mortar going off, but Captain Hilly said it was a mine. He'd heard enough of them this day.
1: Well, we have now some of the real nitty-gritty of war going on here, which we haven't heard on the other reports, and it's pretty amazing that... Uh, Tom Train is wading his way through all these minefields and fortunately did not step on any to get killed. However, as a postscript, I might add that on uh, August 18th of that same uh, year, he was killed in France in an accident where his Jeep um, was basically run over by a tank. It's kind of a, a sad ending that he got through the minefields and ended up one of the American tanks actually doing in his Jeep.
3: The next clip we're going to hear is from CBS's Quentin Reynolds. It's addressed to the listeners, whom he imagines as anxious parents worrying about their sons who are who might be part of this invasion.
7: Now there are millions of anxious mothers and fathers in this country living through the agony of uncertainty, visualizing what their sons went through during this past long, long night. Their hearts are sick with apprehension as they think of their boys there in the hostile beaches of France. It would be presumptuous for any of us to say to these parents, Stop worrying. But perhaps I could give them some information which might make them feel better. You think of your son as a youngster who until recently was not trained to combat, was not born for killing. You shudder at the thought of him fighting against the great impersonal, frightening German war machine. But you forget that this is not only a battle of men, it is a battle of weapons. And today your son landed in France carrying the best weapons ever seen in battle. Earlier, Prime Minister Churchill spoke to the House of Commons. One sentence of his speech should bring a warm glow to the hearts of American parents whose sons are spearheading the invasion. Churchill chuckled and said, We have a great many surprises in store for the enemy. Undoubtedly, the Prime Minister was thinking of the new, magnificent weapons which have been saved for this invasion. Weapons the like of which the world has never
1: seen. Well, we hope that was comforting to people, and it's trying to boost morale um, among uh, those back home in terms of what was going to happen in the the war. I'm not sure what mysterious weapons he was referring to. Well,
0: he was referring to the funnies, (laughs) what they called the funnies. These were tanks that had been outfitted specifically to get through the hedgerows and the rest, and which the Americans didn't
1: have, but the British did, and which were extraordinary machines. They also were using uh, what we would now refer to as drones, unmanned aircraft, and that may have been part of what he was referring to. Uh, but um, you know, any any of the things they had back then, to us today, look like antiques. So it's hard for us sure. to conceive of those. Everyone was waiting all day to hear Franklin Roosevelt on the air. We had heard all day, as you listened to both networks, that Roosevelt had the night before written a prayer for the occasion. To have people ready to go with the president when this happened, the prayer was read in its entirety several times over the air by other people so that people could say the prayer along with Roosevelt. The Roosevelt prayer, however, is very interesting. We're only using a little clip of it, but it's very interesting because while it is a prayer in a more traditional sense, it's also getting people ready for the fact that there may be big casualties, getting ready people for the fact that they're going to have to roll up their sleeves and work very hard to get through the war. It's not over, etc. So let's listen to a little piece of Franklin Roosevelt's prayer.
13: The President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night, When I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and cruel. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph.
1: So now uh, everyone's heard the Roosevelt Prayer. we have to listen a lot longer to hear all of it. Uh, and uh, the president has now been heard from. And of course, you know Roosevelt's reassuring voice that he always had and very, very important during uh, the war. Not all shows were canceled on the networks, but those that went on did not do the original show. Later that evening, in fact, right after the Roosevelt Prayer, Bob Hope came on, and instead of doing a, a his usual comedy show, it was really devoted to the day and the, the occasion. He's coming from a, a P-38 training base, Van Nuys, California, and, and as you know, Bob Hope spent much of his time in that war and subsequent wars in entertaining troops. So let's listen to Bob Hope.
8: DC's coverage of the invasion news of D-Day. The following program will be interrupted without delay to bring you the latest invasion news. Keep tuned to this station.
10: Folks, this is Bob Hope speaking from a P-38 airfield out here near Van Nuys, California. We look forward to being with these men and doing our regular show here, but of course nobody feels like getting up and being funny on a night like this. But we did want to go through with our plans and visit with these fellas because these are the same kind of boys that are flying those 11,000 planes on our big effort. What's happened during these last few hours, not one of us will ever forget. How could you forget? You sat up all night by the radio and heard the bulletins, the flashes, the voices coming across from England, the commentators, the pilots returning from their greatest of all missions... Newsboys yelling in the street, and it seemed that one world was ending and a new world beginning. That history was closing one book and opening a new one. And somehow we knew it had to be a better one. You sat there, and dawn began to sneak in, and you thought of the hundreds of thousands of kids you'd seen in camps the past two or three years. The kids who scream and whistle when they hear a gag and a song. And now you could see all of them again in 4,000 ships in the English Channel, tumbling out of thousands of planes over Normandy and the occupied coast in countless landing barges, crashing the Nazi gate, and going out through to do the job that's the job of all of us. The sun came up and you sat there looking at that huge black headline, that one great black word with the exclamation point, invasion. The one word that the whole world has waited for, that all of us have worked for. We knew we'd wake up one morning and have to meet it face to face, the word in which America's invested everything these 30 long months, the efforts of millions of Americans building planes and weapons, The shipyards and the men who took the stuff across. Little kids buying war stamps and housewives straining bacon grease. Farmers working around the clock. Millions of young men sweating it out in camps and fighting the battles that paved the way for that headline this morning. Now the investment must pay for this generation and all generations to come. And folks, what a wonderful thing it is that no matter the price, the reward will be greater than the sacrifice. We hope that thought can go along with a prayer tonight. The prayer of a whole nation. God bless those kids across the English Channel.
1: And the rest of the Bob Hope show was not this usual comedy skits. It was music, mostly of a patriotic nature. And his longtime female singing person on his show, Frances Langford, uh, sang a song that we will conclude this program of ours with one of the really very fine World War II songs called Good Night Wherever You Are.
0: Dr. Ann Fowl, thank you so much for being with us. It's wonderful to have you here. Thank you. You had a great deal. Dr. Ivan Steen, thank you so much for what you've done for us and collecting all of this with your colleague. Our guests have been Ivan Steen and Ann Pfau. You can hear this program again by visiting wmc.org. The complete D-Day broadcast from CBS and NBC are available at archive.org. This program has been conceived by the Center for Applied Historical Research and produced by David Gustina and Ian Pickus. I'm Alan Chartok. Thank you so much for being with us.
8: Oh, yeah.
13: been listening to Dr. Alan Shartok, President
12: and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on the In Conversation with Alan series or to order additional copies of this or any interview in the series, call 1-800-323-9262 or visit us on the web at WAMC.org.